Monsters Walk With Us contains explicit language, adult themes, violence, and may not be suitable for listeners under 18. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Thank you so much for coming on to join me. I'm very excited this week to have my lovely sister-in-law, Abby, here with us. Hello. (laughs) Yay. Welcome. Awesome to be here. Long-time listener, first-time guest. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) This week, I have a couple exciting updates right off the top. Number one, the Patreon is going to have their first bonus exclusive episode. It'll probably be up by the time this episode is going live. If you want to check it out, you can go over there. It's available for all the tiers, and the link for our Patreon is in the episode description. I also have a corrections corner. I have a listener who emailed me, Michelle, and she sent me a bunch of facts that were either misreported or very confusing in the articles that I found. So I'm going to read the emails that she sent me. Shout out to Michelle. Number one, Casey never worked directly for Universal Studios in Orlando. She actually worked for Kodak. So that's a subcontractor that works for Universal. Probably that's where the stuff about her working for a photo booth at Universal came from, is my guess. Michelle also said that she was in the courtroom at the trial. This year, Kaylee would have been 16 and getting her driver's license, which is mind-blowing. She also sent me some more details about George and Cindy. Apparently, George and Cindy did not split up. So the article that I found that said that they were living together was not accurate. Michelle emailed the following. Since the acquittal in July 2011, Casey has lived with 71-year-old Patrick McKenna at his home in West Palm Beach. He was the lead private investigator for Casey's trial and the O.J. Simpson trial. She currently works for him as an assistant slash secretary. She is a convicted felon and can never hold a private investigator license of her own. Ultimately, she was convicted of four felony counts of lying to the police. She got one year of prison time for each count. With time served before she went on trial and her good behavior, she served just 10 days post-acquittal. Damn. What the the hell? Cindy and George have never split up. They still live in the same house. Wait, they didn't split up? I thought you said they did. Yeah, that's what the article said. It said that the article that I had found said that Casey and Cindy were living together and that Cindy and George had split up. Not the case from what Michelle has emailed me. She also said that Lee, Casey's brother, married his longtime fiance, Mallory. They have a son named Parker. Lee did break all ties with Casey after she was acquitted. So that was reported correctly. And unfortunately, Lee's wife has brain cancer. Oh, man. Michelle also said that Casey appealed her four felony counts and overturned two of them. She still is guilty on the other two counts. She has the previous check fraud convictions from stealing and bouncing checks, which I mentioned in the episode. Apparently that was from one of her friends that she was stealing. She was stealing money from her friends? Yes. Oh. I guess stealing her friend's checks. What are friends for? Just some (laughs) fraud, you know? (laughs) Casey also has had a famous attorney, Shaney Mason, who also served as the attorney for Lisa Nowak, which is another case that is just off the rails. Michelle also said she has always wanted to know who Kaylee's father was, which I have some suspicions about as well. I mean, what she said here, Casey said that he died in a car accident, but many say he was actually a married man. Okay. 
if he was actually dead and she claimed him as Kaylee's father, she would be able to get his social security payments until Kaylee was 18, probably because Kaylee's father is still alive, according to Michelle. Thank you for the emails, Michelle. Definitely want to make sure that all this stuff is accurate. And I have now started to link all of the articles or if they want to look at the sources. So wild. Yes. Michelle's theory holds water about Casey's father being alive and a married man. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Casey seems like a person who would be like, look at this obituary. Pity me, poor me. This is so sad. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't put it past her. I mean, I don't know her, but yeah, I wouldn't put anything past Casey Anthony. Yeah. Huge shout out to our friends on Patreon. I'm going to start reading the patrons at the top of each episode. Kieran, Dana, Kat, Ashlyn, Meredith, and Caitlin. Thank you so much. There is bonus content that goes up there. I will be putting that full episode up there. I've also done a poll and early access to the last couple episodes. I'm going to keep trying to do all those things. So go ahead and check it out. If you want to support us, you can also buy me a Red Bull at the Instagram. There is a link in the bio. You can click it and a bunch of lovely buttons will come up. The feature where it says buy me a Red Bull means that you can make a one-time donation in the amount of your choice from the options that are there and keep the pod caffeinated. Thank you so much if you decide to do that. I'm really excited to get my first Red Bull. One more update before we dive in is that I've realized that when I'm making my notes, I'm writing in the content warnings for the episodes, but I'm not always capturing what we talk about in the episode if there's mention of other stuff. So I am going to continue using content warnings, but I'm going to start listing them in the episode descriptions. So you can- see before you even click, before you even get started, what kinds of things are being mentioned. I got my 16 ounces of Red Bull down. I'm ready. (laughs) Perfect. It's actually not. I usually go for the 20 ounce. (laughs) Are those the ones with the like screw on caps? No. Oh my God. Is that a thing? Does Red Bull make that? I don't know, but Monster has these like, it looks like four cans put together with like a screw on cap. And it's just heavy duty. Give me this Red Bull. (laughs) Oh, man. I think 20 ounces is the biggest I've seen. Okay, yeah. I think they're like 32 ounce massive tall boys. (laughs) So, all right, let's just a quick aside about Red Bull. One of my true (laughs) passions in this world. I have my own classification system of Red Bull. So the eight ounce, the like normal quote unquote size. Those are not normal. Those are teeny weeny. That's a baby. Red Bull for (laughs) babies. Baby Red Bull. (laughs) So I would drink like two of those and then eventually that's not doing anything. And then like three of those. Yeah. Then I'm like, all right, I might as well go to the 12. Again, I'm like two or three of these. mm, Not really doing it. (laughs) I'm going to step it up again. Then I go to the biggins the 16s, which is what I just had. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I could probably still do two of them. I'm trying to be responsible with my stomach. So I'm on one. The 20 is my true soulmate. I love oh, the man. 20 ounce Red Bull. It's just the right amount. <laughs> and I had a job at Stewart's back in the day, which is a regional gas station slash dairy ice cream. Oh man. Yes. We had one of those in Pulteney. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple in other states was like mostly in New York is my understanding. There's like Connecticut and then Pulteney was like right on the line of New York and Vermont. Right. When I worked there, I was really good friends with the manager. Shout out T-Money. 
And I was a cigarette smoker at the time, probably around two packs a day. I would go in the freezer with a 20 ounce Red Bull. I would sort out all of the frozen stuff that we heat up and like serve throughout the week, sort all of that out. Then I would go outside and smoke a cigarette. I'd finish my Red Bull, smoke another cigarette. Then I would go back in there and sort out the other half, which is like all the pints of ice cream that we were selling because they sell (laughs) pints and fresh that you can like get scooped. So all the prepackaged pints of ice cream, sort those out and then go back outside, another Red Bull, another cigarette, head back in there. And now I'm going to hit all of the convenience frozen foods. So like the pizzas, the microwave stuff, all of that crap come out, smoke another cigarette, and then just like try to have a minute to warm up because that much time in the cold freezer, even with the gross smelly jacket Especially when you're going outside, if it's like the middle of winter, I'd be frozen. Well, it was always the summer when I was working there. That's um, good. <laughs> because I worked there when I was on breaks from school. And that was the only time I had breaks mm-hmm. really from being an RA that I oh, could work yeah. there for more than like a week. Yeah, that was my pattern. I got, you know, we have a tolerance to Red Bull as a result. It's very high. <laughs> so now I'm like 20 ounces or 16 ounces or let's not waste my time. <laughs> I always want to buy the multi-packs, but it's not worth it to me because you can't get a multi-pack of the size that I want. You can't? Oh man. You can just get like a four pack, right? They don't even have like a 12 pack. Yeah. I think it's the eight ounce and maybe the 12 ounce. You can get a 12 pack of the eight ounce for sure. Oh man. Cause Mike bought yeah. me some one time. I was like, Hey, can you stop and get me some? This is before the classification system had fully been developed. Yeah. <laughs> I've had a lifelong affair. I used to love in college, Red Bull and Jaeger. Oh, Jaeger bombs, Jaeger bombs, Jaeger bombs, Jaeger bombs. Now to finally get into the case. <laughs> Today's case you probably have heard of because you also are into true crime, but it happened when you were younger. So I don't know how much of this you would have picked up on from the news. Okay. Because how old are you? 21. How old were you in 2007? Either seven or eight. Okay. Yeah. So actually this will probably be brand new stuff for you unless you've heard about this later in life. I was probably not paying attention to like anything outside of my inner circle of school until I was maybe like 10. (laughs) I also decided that I'm going to start listing the sources in the episode descriptions as well. So I'm not spoiling the case before we start getting into the facts. Awesome. This week, we are talking about the murder of Meredith Kircher. This case happened in Peruga, Italy, which is in Umbria. It's a very historically rich area, and there are two universities there. One is for Italian-born students, and one is for international students. It's a pretty alive city. There's an active nightlife. There's a lot of students, but it's a lot safer than Milan or Florence, those larger cities. On November 22nd, 2007, both universities are closed for All Souls Day, and people are gathering for all kinds of memorials to remember the dead. One woman is out in her garden checking on her roses, and she hears a cell phone ring. She looks around and finds two cell phones, and it's very obvious that someone had thrown them over the hedge into her garden. She calls the local police and hands the phones over to them, and the police decide to try to return the phones to their owners. They are able to trace one of the phones to Via Della Pergola. As they're driving there, the station gets a report of a break-in from the same address, the owner of the phone. Oh, 
they get there and they find Rafael Solecito and Amanda Knox standing outside. Amanda is an international student living in the house with three other women. Rafael, her boyfriend, is 23. He's also a student studying at the Italian university. They had seen a broken window at the house and called the cops to report it. Both the cell phones belong to Amanda's roommate, Meredith Kircher. Nobody has seen her and her bedroom door is locked. One of the roommate's boyfriends and friends had come to the house and the cops had told them, we can't legally break down the door, but y'all can. Okay. This happened a lot when I worked at schools too, depending on the occupancy contracts and if it's public safety, if it's police, depends on whether or not they can legally enter the space without a warrant. They were allowed to enter if the door was open though? If the door was open, one of the roommates could have just gone in there. Yeah. So the roommates, they're telling the roommates to like break in to their roommate's room and like look around. Yes. Oh, that's fun. Right. <laughs> That's a, one of the many reasons I did not want to live at college. In my time in <laughs> higher ed, I frequently had the cops not be able to cross the threshold of a room until they were certain that there was drugs or drug paraphernalia in there, like an RA had seen it and was reporting it, or to have them confiscate the items, we would have to carry it outside of the room and they would pick it up from the door. Oh. Weird legal stuff. Oh, geez. Yeah. These guys break the door down and there is a gruesome scene on the other side. They see Meredith's body. It's covered in blood. And the room is also splattered with blood everywhere. There is a slash across Meredith's throat. It's about eight centimeters long and it's very deep. On the bed, there is an outline of a knife in blood. And when they look in the bathroom, they find some blood smudges. And these look pretty fresh. They also find a poopy in the toilet. Was it Meredith's? It was not Meredith. Spoiler alert, it is not Meredith's poopy. So let's talk about Meredith for a bit. Meredith Kircher was also an international student who had come to Perugia from the UK. She was studying politics. She has long brown hair, brown eyes, and she looks really happy in all of the pictures that I was able to find. She had been living in Perugia for just two months before her murder. Meredith was the youngest of four children. She had always wanted to study abroad, specifically in Italy. She really wanted to become fluent in Italian, and she had chosen Perugia specifically because it was so safe. She's very social, and she knew she would be able to enjoy a pretty full life there outside of just school. She's really, really funny. She has a wonderful sense of humor, and her family says she really appreciated ridiculousness. (laughs) I assume this means like irony and just silly things in general. Yeah. Is that a translation, or is that like the word they use? That's what they used. Yeah, that's how her sister described her. Nice. (laughs) Her nickname was Mez. And her sister also described her as beautiful, intelligent, very witty. She had grown up in a suburb of Southern London. Her dad said that she fought very hard to get out to Italy. There was quite a few setbacks, but she was determined to go. And she kept persisting and eventually she got what she wanted. It seems like her family was well off to me. Before she left for college, she did go to a private school called the Old Palace School, and this school cost 10,000 euro a year to attend. 10,000 euro a year? That feels like a lot of money to me. I understand it may not be to some people, but... Yeah, for a high school. 
Um, I have no gauge at all of like how much high school costs. My college was really expensive, but it was college. Yeah, college, but like high school. It's a lot. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) She studies for three years in the UK before she transfers to the international university. More people are starting to gather outside the house and more and more cop cars keep showing up and they all have their sirens wooing. It's becoming this huge circus right away. The media is starting to show up and it's just getting bigger and bigger. Around 3 p.m., Giuliano Minini gets to the scene. He's a magistrate, which is the equivalent to like an assistant prosecutor in the United States. He asks when he gets there if the people on the scene think it is a suicide or an accidental death. Immediately, they tell him, no, this is a clear murder. Yeah. The crime scene has blood everywhere, and there is a pillow propped up under Meredith's hips. She's covered with a duvet, and when they uncover her, they see that her bra is ripped and there is visible bruising on her thighs. Immediately, the cops take this as proof of a sexual assault. They start putting together a timeline of events. She had gone out with friends for some pizza. Around 9 p.m., she and one of her friends walked home, but for the last five minutes of the walk, they split up. It's not really a dangerous place. Yeah. This is a regular part of her social life as a student here. Meredith lives with Amanda. They share one room in this building. And then there's two other Italian students who live in the basement apartment. Is the apartment owned by the campus or is it off campus? It's off campus. Okay. Just a a house that was split into like a duplex. So the upper level and the lower level. So the college is like not associated with this at all. Right. It's not university housing. Both the Italian women in the basement apartment were away visiting family. And Amanda was away at her boyfriend, Raphael's, the night before. Okay. He lives about 10 minutes away from their house. Okay. Nobody spoke with Meredith after she had walked home with this friend. Right away, the Italian investigators start to suspect Amanda Knox. They zero in on her behaviors. They think that the way she's reacting to finding her roommate murdered is very strange. She and Raphael are holding each other. He's like kissing her and hugging her and holding her. Mm -hmm. To me, this seems like a reasonable response. Yeah. You're horrified. So she's horrified and he's comforting her or how is she reacting? She looks upset. Yeah. They're just, she's not crying or weeping. They're just like cuddled up to each other. There isn't like a checklist of like how you should react to these kinds of things. Correct. Shock is going to look different, present different, be different. You can't judge based on shock. You have to go from the evidence. Exactly. I mean, what was their relationship like, Amanda and Meredith? They're roommates, they're friendly, and Amanda's just seen her body. Yes, you need some comfort. I would need comfort and I would need alcohol. (laughs) Lots. (laughs) Yeah. The cops say, oh, this seems like they need to give each other courage for some reason. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mignini immediately becomes convinced that this, quote, inappropriate behavior means Amanda was involved in Meredith's murder. Inappropriate behavior? Ten minutes in, figuratively. Yeah, yeah. Like, before they have any, like, concrete evidence, when they're just taking in everything that's around them, they're already accusing the first person that they see on site. Right. 
Amanda's alibi is that she and Raphael were at home at his place and they were on the computer for most of the night. They do check Raphael's computer and they see there's no activity on the computer past 9.15 p.m. This gives them even more fuel for their theory that Amanda and Raphael were involved. The news is out and everyone living in Perugia is shocked. The female identifying students are freaking out because nobody knows why Meredith was killed, and the cops are feeling the pressure. They have to get this case closed, and they have to find the murderer right now. Crime scene photos are published on the front pages of local newspapers and run on all the news broadcasts. Like pictures of Meredith's dead body was like on the front page of every... I try not to look at crime scene photos, so I don't know if her body was pictured or not. Yeah. I think it was just the scene after they had removed her body, but it's still gruesome. Regardless, I feel like don't police officers and investigators usually like not reveal certain things like that so that when they question people, they aren't allowed to like look at things like that beforehand. Yes. I don't know in terms of like how investigations differ internationally Mm -hmm. in terms of the procedure, but I definitely think that there were a lot of issues with how much the media had access. Yeah, that's another problem as well. The media actually starts calling this house a house of horrors in all their headlines. Oh boy. That's the sensational tone that is happening right away. This is very, very alarming to Meredith's father because he is a well-established journalist in Britain. He actually finds out through the media first that a British woman was killed. Oh, man. And then he starts calling Meredith on the phone repeatedly and he cannot get through. A few hours later, a co-worker at the Daily Mirror tells him it is Meredith. The college didn't contact him or anything? Nope. Wow. That's messed up. Nor the police. Yeah, exactly. You have her phones. You can't find a contact in there and call someone in her phone. Come on. If Meredith had friends, I feel like one of them might contact her parents in 2007. I don't know. It depends. I don't think any of my friends could have contacted my parents. I guess not. Like cell phones and sharing location and all of that stuff. In 2007, I mean, we're talking like flip phones. Not everybody had a cell phone. Yeah. I know Meredith had two, but it was still kind of in the before days. iPhones didn't (laughs) exist yet. It wouldn't necessarily be like now where you could probably find them on social media and reach out if you didn't have their phone number. It was like, you might not even know who they were, especially because they were older. She's a senior at this point. Meredith's autopsy is completed. There is severe damage on her throat, two deep wounds on the left side and one on the right. Her most serious neck wound would have been fatal on its own because Meredith would have drowned in her own blood. Damn. Yeah, that's so brutal. Yeah. (laughs) She would not have even been able to move or scream based on these wounds. Damn. Yeah. Police are working from the assumption that this is an attempted or completed sexual assault, and they do find a small amount of DNA inside or Mm -hmm. on Meredith's body. They went back and forth a couple times. If it's like on your body, if I were to like hug somebody, would my my DNA would be on their body technically, right? DNA does transfer. It's impossible to exist in the world and not leave behind a transfer of DNA. 
That's probably not what they're testing in 2007. I'm going to guess it was some kind of fluids, bodily fluids that they found. Now I think they can Mm -hmm. test for touch DNA, touch a a doorknob or something because of the sweat. But in terms of hugging someone, I don't know. I mean, microscopically you're leaving skin cells and hair. If they were to DNA test anything in my house, they're going to find like my dog, Jessica from (laughs) JonBenet Ramsey, Hunter Kaifex episodes dog, Mike. Me. Yeah. It's like just everywhere. Like in your car, like your DNA is like all over the place in your car. So it's just. Yes. So it's impossible not to leave trace evidence or trace DNA as you move through the earth. (laughs) Now police are wondering, did someone break in through a window and that's how Meredith was murdered? What happened? Because the door was locked. Mignini says all of the evidence says otherwise to me. Why would a burglar pick this window and this wall to try to break in through because this side of the house is visible from the street. Cops do find a rock on the floor next to the broken glass, but the window is broken between a small space in the shutters and nothing is missing from the room. So there's these wooden shutters on the outside of the window and it's described that however they managed to find the right spot between the slats to throw this rock through. Rather specific. Feels weird, but I'm also like, if someone wants to break in, they're going to make it work. Like a slingshot expert. I also don't know how big was the rock. Like if it's big enough, isn't it just going to rattle the shutters? Could they have opened the shutters? Right? Like there's other ways. Mignini says maybe Meredith knew her killers and it's probably some kind of sex related motive behind this murder. And then he starts believing that Amanda and Raphael were having orgies with Meredith and something went wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like how did you make this jump? I have to say when I was working in Tennessee, it was like my third day there. I knew nobody there, knew nothing about like what I was doing or where I was or whatever. And this kid who had been there for like a couple months by then, he was kind of weird like kind of antisocial did like he would like get up in the middle of the night and work he was a jughead <laughs> jones he was a weirdo i don't know i didn't know him very well <laughs> he behaved strangely yeah i didn't know him very well but there was this one morning when he got up like really early to do the morning chores and i saw him up on the hill and then like an hour later we were looking for him and he was nowhere to be found like halfway through the day we were like looking through the woods like looking everywhere for this kid nowhere to be found so we called the police and this town was a very small town. So nothing really happened there. So everybody came and our neighbors all thought it was like a drug bust. Like they thought we were growing weed or something. <laughs> I was about to say they probably thought it was a weed farm. Yep. And on this little nowhere farm in Tennessee, like all the policemen just came running up with their sirens on. Oh, my gosh. And then cops really love to do the absolute most but somehow also the absolute least. Once we explained to them, like, we're trying to look for this kid. He is from another state. His parents are not here. Like, we're all just volunteers here. He was like, oh, well, obviously. So there was me and then this boy that ran away. And then another boy who was also a volunteer who had been there like two or three months. So the policeman was like trying to spitball, like, why this kid ran away? And he was like talking that shit. Exactly. And he was like, well, obviously he was in love with me, but I was in love with this other kid who is still here. Clearly, clearly. It's actually your fault. Exactly. And because I didn't love this kid, he ran away into the woods. No car, no shoes, no nothing. Just like 
ran away. <laughs> this policeman went very in detail with this like love triangle that we made up in the past two days that I was there. And then meanwhile, like Sam, the head farmer was like doing all the responsible things, calling the kids' parents and like the kids' parents was coming up from their state. <laughs> and then like exactly 24 hours later from when he ran away, he was like back up on the hill doing morning chores. And he was like, I just didn't really feel like I was helping. So I ran away. It was just like, he ended up going home after that, but it had like nothing to do with any of us. There was nothing to back up what the policeman was saying, but he was like, sure that this is what was going on. (laughs) I already don't have to ask you if it was a white man because I feel it. Oh yeah. I feel it. It was it just shows how much power that the police have in the United States in a really bad way where they can show up and out of nothing. Now that's the narrative of what's happening with this case. I've seen it go down personally with working with students who were missing. Yeah. Based off of like stereotypes and speculation. Yeah. Yeah. They can be very callous. And it's also a lot of like, oh, well, this probably happened. Oh, well, this probably happened. And also, frankly, a lot of slut shaming or victim blaming. Yeah. It's disgusting. Oh my God. And that's exactly what's happening here. This patriarchy of cops are just focused on now this is the theory and this is exactly what happened. Amanda's other roommates also say when they get interviewed that Amanda has been hooking up with a couple different guys. And the way that the cops are talking about it really seems like they're just slut shaming Amanda. What is Amanda dating other people. Well, I guess them being in the apartment is why they're looking into these people. Okay. Yeah. That she had all these other guys over, which so what? Yes. Maybe there was some roommate stuff that wasn't great in terms of the communication and Meredith did have like some complaints, but in terms of somebody's hooking up with a bunch of people and maybe they're dating, maybe they're not dating. That doesn't matter to you if it's not impacting your health or safety. That part of the situation wouldn't be impacting the case. So it's not something they should be speculating about. Right. They do also tell the cops that Meredith did not think that Amanda was the greatest roommate. She left a box of condoms under their bathroom sink, and she's not the greatest at cleaning up after herself. She also keeps her vibrator out on a cabinet in the bathroom. I would put it in a like cleaner place, but you know, <laughs> to each their own. Do not put your vibrator on display, please, especially if you have fucking roommates. That's a good place to start in terms of boundaries. The roommates also say that Amanda is loud, that she can dominate conversations, and there could be tension at points between Meredith and Amanda based on these different standards they have of cleanliness, which is very common in roommate issues. One person thinks it's clean. One person thinks it is fucking filthy and you're a disgusting pig. And therein lies the problem. You have to be very specific about what clean is to you and what you want to see when the other person is cleaning. There's got to be a standard that's matched. There has to be guidelines and communication. I could go on about it for hours, but I don't have to anymore because I quit that work. So. Meredith's friends also are telling the cops that they are suspicious of Amanda. They think that she might be involved and the cops are eating it up. They want to hear all of it. A few days after the murder, Amanda and Raphael have a date night. They go out for dinner and they end up going to shop for some lingerie. The media and the police find this highly, highly inappropriate because how dare you eat and shop after this happened? And again, this is more proof, oh, they're being so suspicious. Why were they being suspicious? 
because they went out for dinner and they went shopping for this oh, lingerie. Okay. Yeah. Why would you eat or go shopping or do Why anything? go about your life? Part of it is like the paparazzi is following you. It's like this image thing. Like the cops don't like how she looks in the media. So now it's more, it's confirmation bias. This is what happened. And now I'm going to find and pick and choose the pieces that match mm-hmm. that. And anything that doesn't match that, that's bullshit. It's Fox News. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mignini and the cops bring Amanda back to the house and start looking at knives in the kitchen. Amanda gets upset being back in the house and covers her ears with her hands. Two days in, now they are fully convinced she's guilty. This pushes Mm -hmm. it over the edge for them. Three days after Meredith's body is found, a memorial is held for her and people gather for a candlelight vigil. Amanda does not attend this vigil. She is being swarmed by journalists paparazzi style every time that she goes out publicly and they are questioning everyone and anyone who could know Amanda that is willing to talk with them. Anyone who's willing to give an interview, they're going to give you a voice and a platform. At this point, are they like even looking for other suspects or are they like beyond that? Right now they're mostly focused on Amanda and Raphael. It has to be both of them together. Of course. Because they were wanted to have sex with Meredith or were having sex with Meredith or they attacked Mm -hmm. Meredith. They also find out that Amanda has a childhood nickname, Foxy Noxy, that she occasionally uses on Facebook. It's like this innocent childhood nickname, but the media immediately starts putting a sexual connotation on this and turning it into this big sexy nickname. And she's this sexy black widow murderess. And it's just really, really gross. The way that they are reporting it, the way that they are putting this spin on her, it's very misogynistic. Yeah. Amanda's parents are shocked. They cannot believe this is what's happening now that Amanda is finally studying abroad. She has been there all summer. She loves this little house that she found to live in while she was there. And Amanda's sister says that Amanda liked Meredith. They had an okay relationship as roommates. She thought Meredith was really sweet. Amanda had just started talking to her family about Raphael the week before Meredith was killed. She told them he was from a wealthy family in Southern Italy. He was studying engineering and he's pretty introverted. He's very quiet by nature. Cops take this and say, okay, Raphael is clearly a Norman Bates type. Something's wrong with him. He's too quiet. Obviously. He collects knives, which they see as a huge red flag. And for Halloween that had just passed, he had dressed up, wrapped up in bandages, carrying a meat cleaver. So obviously this means he has violent tendencies. Yeah. They also find Raphael's blog. He has some posts where he talks about wishing he could have some more extreme experiences, which can literally mean anything. Yeah. My sister, Deirdre wants to skydive. Yeah. That to me is a very extreme experience that I'm all fucking set on. I'm good. I feel like it's very dramatic to say it like so cryptic and vague like that. Yeah. They take this out of context of whatever the rest of the post is. And that's again, more proof. Yep. This fits the theory. 
On November 5th, 2007, Raphael is asked to come into the police station for questioning. Amanda goes with him there and waits for him in the lobby. They start interrogating him about the night of the murder. And he tells them that Amanda was supposed to work her shift at a local bar that night, but she'd gotten a text saying it was really slow. We don't need you to come in. Amanda and Raphael watch a movie, have dinner, they have sex, and then they take a shower and go to bed. Just a normal kind of romantic evening in. Typical couple night. The cops start coming at Raphael pretty hard, and he is saying things that don't exactly match what he and Amanda had said initially. The cops say this is signs that he's finally cracking and he's finally giving in. He's going to tell them the truth. But the signs that he's showing are also signs of being coerced into a false confession because of the way that they're wearing him down and the way that they're doing this interrogation of, we know you're guilty. We know you're guilty. Just tell us you did it. Just tell us you did it. Was it Amanda who did it? What happened? Like, oh, yeah. We know you sexually assaulted her. Just everything that they can say that they're going to try to grind him down with. Actually, one of the things he says is that Amanda did leave the house for a little bit and then came back to his place around 1 a.m. Okay. And then he says, well, I was lying before, but now I'm telling you the truth. Cops now are very excited to go question Amanda. They bring her in and they start asking her, what do you think happened? Talk to us about the timeline. Walk us through stuff. And then they say, we know your alibi is full of holes and we know that you texted your boss. And at the end of your text, you said, ci vediamo, which means see you later or see you soon. She's saying, well, I didn't see Patrick that night, her boss. I didn't go to work. I didn't see him. And the cops are saying, we know you're lying because of this text message. Stop lying. Tell us the truth. See you later is so vague. That could mean like, see you next week. See you later. Right. To the cops, this implies that Amanda did go see him because now Raphael has said, yeah, maybe she did leave for a little bit. She left until 1 a.m. And this means maybe there is a third person involved in this murder. By hour five of Amanda's interrogation, she says that she did see Patrick that night. So they've had her in like this one room attacking her, wearing her down. She finally says, yeah, I saw Patrick. We met up by the basketball court at the university. And then we went back to my apartment together. Then she says Patrick Lumumba, her boss at the bar, killed Meredith Kircher. Okay. She is crying. She starts putting her hands over her ears again. And this makes the cops ecstatic because now they have both Meredith and Raphael up against the wall. They have these statements where they've incriminated themselves. And now they have a third suspect too. Patrick Lumumba owns Le Chic the bar that Amanda works at part-time. He's an immigrant to Italy from the Congo. The night Meredith was killed, a couple did report seeing a Black man running near Meredith's house. Obviously, a Black man running is highly suspicious. That's so suspicious, we gotta call the cops right now. Obviously. Did they call the cops just to say that? They did report to the police that they saw this. I don't know if it was that night or after they heard about the murder, but they did call the cops. Oh my gosh. That's, yeah. Obviously, this Black man is Patrick. Obviously. Duh. Based on all of that, they take Patrick, Amanda, and Raphael into custody. Okay. 
Cops tell Patrick, we know what you did and you know what you did. You are fucking guilty. They have nothing to go on other than what Amanda said. The text message and what Amanda said is the sum of their evidence against Patrick. That's fun. He says, I know Meredith. She's come to the bar and she goes there with a lot of friends. It's not a huge city. So the cops accuse Patrick of killing Meredith. And he says, why would I kill a girl to try to have sex with her? Yeah. A good question. And they say, I don't know, maybe you're some kind of thrill seeker. And he snaps at them in his own words. He says, You are crazy if you think that I would do that for a thrill. Damn. All three are forced to do a classic perp walk, which means the police walk them in handcuffs in front of the police station. And all of the journalists get to go wild and take all these pictures of them in handcuffs. What? This happens in the United States, too. Yeah, or on the way to court. Patrick says that at the time, one of the cops had offered him something to cover his face, which is a thing people do sometimes. Patrick said, I have nothing to hide. I don't need your cloth. Yeah, good for him for defending himself. Badass motherfucker. The media is eating this up. Amanda is a beautiful American international student. Raphael is a semi-rich Italian. And Patrick is actually a well-known musician. This is a, a very salient story for them to be selling. Got the international tie. There's a sex crime. The cops are not being secretive about who they suspect or what's happening. They're being very public with everything. Mm-hmm. Amanda's parents find out she was taken into custody in relation to being a suspect in Meredith's murder by watching the news. So the same way that Meredith's parents found out. More just learning horrible, horrible, horrible news about your relatives by turning on the TV. They probably wouldn't be speaking in the kindest way about them. Correct. That's always the best way to hear about it. Amanda's mom flies to Italy and wants to be there and support her. Amanda is still dealing with the fact that Meredith was murdered in her apartment that she shared with her. And she's the first person who had saw the body. And she is actually put into isolation. Amanda's mom describes her during this time as feeling completely hopeless and totally overwhelmed. Amanda's dad says that the media twisting all this information and having to see that happen in real time was awful. All of the media wants to find a big break and get some fresh news on this case. And they find a bunch of witnesses. They find one man, a homeless drug dealer who lives in a basketball court that overlooks the house. He says that he saw Amanda and Raphael peeking over a fence down at the house around midnight. Cops still have no concrete evidence, only the circumstantial stuff that we've talked about. They search Raphael's apartment and find a shoe that maybe might match a bloody footprint found in Meredith's room. They also find a knife with evidence of DNA belonging to Amanda and Meredith. The police hold a press conference and they declare the case is closed. From all of that evidence? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Done deal. We're good. Uh Uh-huh. We checked off all those boxes and we are all set. Nothing else to see here. The Italian public believes everything that they're hearing in the media, but the cops have significant problems with Patrick's case because there are two eyewitnesses that saw him at Le Chic the night of the murder, and they have literally no evidence on him. They start to realize that he is innocent. (laughs) Start to realize. (laughs) Start to realize. 
And they become even more suspicious of Amanda because why would she be blaming someone who is totally innocent for this crime? Patrick agrees with this. Like, why would you try to pin this Mm -hmm. on me unless you were involved? Mm Mm-hmm. Amanda comes out publicly and recants her statement to the police. She says that she was exhausted after hours of being interrogated and the police had been bullying her and confusing her, talking circles around her the whole time. Understandable. (laughs) Yeah. She also says that they kept calling her a liar and telling her that she is definitely going to go to jail for at least 30 years because we know you're hiding something. Damn. The cops also hit her on the back of the head twice during her interrogation. What the fuck? And in the reenactment of what I was watching, it was like a tap on the back of the head. But that's still not okay. Yeah, I didn't think you were allowed to like touch or hit somebody at all when interrogating them. Here you're not. I am not 100% sure on the laws in Italy. Italian listeners, please write in, send me an email, let me know. Amanda is scared shitless during this interrogation, especially after getting these two hits to the head, because she has no idea what can happen to her. She's on her own. She's at the mercy of these cops who clearly have just had it out for her since the beginning. She has no idea what to do. She's at the end of her rope and she decides to just bring up Patrick and throw his name Mm -hmm. out there, which again, a white woman throwing the blame on a person of color that they were asking her about. I know that it's like she's in this extreme situation, but it is kind of hard for me that she's like, I know one black guy. Oh, yeah. And they have this text message. And now I have to say it was him instead of just being like he wasn't involved or whatever. You know what I mean? I fully understand the weight of coercion and false confessions. Like, I get it. But it's kind of shitty that the cops and Amanda were so ready to implicate this black man. That she was so on board with that. Yeah. That she was able to get to that point and that the cops were pushing it to get to that point, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand. Amanda was interviewed for a total of 40 hours over five days, including several overnight sessions. Yeah. So she's sleep deprived and this whole week is stressful because she's just pretty much when she's awake getting interviewed. Yeah. Sleep deprived, isolated, probably hasn't been eating or sleeping well. It's hostile. They're attacking you repeatedly. Everything that you say, they say you're a liar. Yeah. You say the sky is blue. They say it's green. You're crazy for thinking it's blue. Yeah. Yeah. So of course she's going to break. Yeah. Like, I understand why it happened. And it has been proven that false confessions are real. If you think that false confessions aren't real, that's coming at some point down the line. We're going to talk about that because I personally know of a case, my hometown, where someone was railroaded into a false confession. And it's absolutely disgusting. I don't know if I'll ever cover it because I know some people have like personal connections to the people involved. I don't know how I feel Mm. about that, but false confessions are absolutely real. It's only a matter of time before you can break someone down. Yeah. And I mean, they're trained to do that. Yeah. It's how cults work. It's how abusive relationships work. It's how really toxic environments function. You get people into this like normed space where things seem okay. And it's, it's not, Mm -hmm. but it's been that way for a while. And everybody just gets used to operating under those conditions. 
Two weeks after Meredith's murder, DNA test results come back in. An unknown DNA profile is found with the forensic evidence from the crime scene. There's bloody handprints in the room. And the fingerprints have a match in the system. Rudy Getty is an immigrant from the Ivory Coast living in Perugia. He is unemployed, but had been caught dealing drugs just a couple days before the murders. So most likely that's what he had been doing for money. He had a knife, a stolen cell phone, and a stolen computer on him when he was arrested. Rudy had also been at their house before. Meredith and Amanda had met him in the basement apartment of their place, probably when the Italian roommates had a party. Rudy has also left the country since the murder occurred. He flew to Germany. He is extradited back to Italy, arrested for Meredith's murder, and put in jail. They find more of his fingerprints and DNA from Meredith's purse, Meredith's body, and the poopy that was left behind in the toilet. The pathologist doesn't think that Meredith and Rudy had sex, but he does believe some type of sexual foreplay happened. Nobody can say whether or not this was consensual. We will never know. Right. Obviously, this changes everything the cops thought that they knew about the crime. All the orgies and all that. Right. Amanda and Raphael's families are very relieved Now they have the suspect. It's only a matter of time before Amanda and Raphael are exonerated, and this is all going to be over soon. But in Italian courts, suspects of crime can be held without any formal charges filed against them for up to a year. Okay. So the way that it typically works in the States, first is they get the warrants and they complete the arrest. It goes to a grand jury to determine if it'll go to trial, like if the charges are upheld to go to trial, and then it goes to trial. Okay. The whole time you're held, unless you can afford to pay bail, or you have somebody who can put up collateral in order for you to pay bail. Okay. But some crimes, they will not grant bail. Okay. Right. Or they make the amount really, really high. I'm not 100% on the grand jury, that order, but I think I think that's accurate. They decide to keep Raphael and Amanda in jail. So they're arrested now? They're not arrested. They're just still okay. being held without charges. Mignini defends this by saying if they let Amanda and Raphael go, they would have talked to each other and that would have ruined the investigation. Of course. The physical evidence that they are saying proves Amanda and Raphael's guilt is very sus. Meredith's DNA on the knife they found at Raphael's place is so, so small that there is a very wide margin of error in testing. Okay. One defense expert says openly, this is not the murder weapon. There's no way. The largest wound on Meredith's neck proves that the knife taken into evidence could not have created that wound. Yeah. Well, in my head, I'm picturing like the knife you're talking about is really small. I'm picturing like a paring knife and that would not go through, like gash someone's neck. Meredith's blood that had been collected from the bathroom also contains Amanda's DNA. So the bathroom that Amanda and Meredith share has Amanda's DNA inside. communal bathroom. That's weird. Yeah, was it on the shelf where the dildo was? Because that was like... (laughs) (laughs) It's a shared bathroom. You're not going to get just one source of DNA from there. (laughs) The last piece of evidence is Meredith's bra clasp had a mixed DNA sample with some of Raphael's DNA. But we know that Raphael was spending time in this room as Mm -hmm. well. DNA shedding and overlap and all kinds of stuff. 
This evidence is up for debate because the bra was not collected until six weeks after the rest of the evidence had been collected from the house. What? You sneaky, sneaky. I don't like it. So it's just been like sitting around like with all the other evidence. And then you're like, oh, I'll test this now. No, they go back and find it after they've taken everything from the scene. Oh, They're like, oh, her bra. Did we leave that? There is also video footage that the police took from February 11th, 2007, that shows a cop literally kicking a glass panel open on the back door to get into the apartment. There's no care whatsoever. He's literally like trying to roundhouse kick the door, breaks all the glass to shit, and then opens the door from the inside and lets himself in. So the police have taken video of them collecting all this evidence, right? The cross-contamination is very clear. Oh, yeah. They are collecting one sample. Let's say they are taking DNA off of a door handle. Mm -hmm. They are then collecting another sample with the same gloves on. Oh. There's very obvious space for cross-contamination all over the scene. There's video of them wiping stuff up and then using another wipe to wipe up other liquid evidence or like stains. Defense experts say, obviously, when they were first trying to get in the room, Raphael could have touched the door handle. He's trying to get in and break the door down. So if they're using that same door handle as they're collecting evidence coming in and out of the room, you have no integrity to this crime scene. You can't say that any of this evidence is 100% clear cut. To contrast, the evidence against Rudy Getty is looking great. He is willing to talk with investigators now that he's been locked up, and he tells them that he knows who really killed Meredith. The cops go to interrogate him in jail, and he says that he was actually with Meredith on the night that she died. She invited him over, and they had a date night scheduled. She lets him come in, and they start hanging out. They start to make out, but neither one of them has a condom, and they decide to slow things down. What about the condoms that were underneath the bathroom sink? I never made that connection. Wow. At first I was like, that's such a weird specific thing to complain about. I would just simply ask, like, put those in your desk drawer or something. I can't believe I did not connect that whatsoever. Maybe there was condoms there. Who knows? There's a hole in the plot. Rudy says that he had eaten a kebab that night that wasn't sitting well. Okay. (laughs) I wrote this note and now I have to say it. I feel like this happens to me a lot. He goes into the bathroom to drop a nasty deuce, and while he's pooping, he hears yelling. He hears Meredith scream, and he runs out of the bathroom quickly and sees somebody he does not know, a strange man, hunched over Meredith's dead body. So that's why the poopy was there. He just had to, like, hustle it to find out what was going on, is his story. Didn't even have time to wash his hands. No hand Mm-mm. wash. Who God only knows if there was a wipe or if it was just our, got a run. Yep. Police continue interrogating Rudy for months. Damn. Eventually, he says, oh, you know what? That guy actually looked exactly like Rafael Solicito. Oh. Just like him. Twins. Now that I'm remembering. Then, now I'm remembering. <laughs> yes. Thank you for jogging my memory. Really needed that help to identify this unknown person. Now I have seen the light. Thank you. He also 
starts to accuse Amanda. He says that he saw Amanda when he was leaving the house. She was acting suspicious and that he had gone up to Meredith and covered her neck wound with a towel. Then he started to panic because he felt like immediately I'm going to be the main suspect. I'm just going to run. Because if Amanda was there and you saw Amanda and Raphael acting guilty and Raphael over the body, why would you call the cops about that? Oh, no. That's if you're totally innocent. I mean, like, don't no need to involve them at all. Just got to run. Prosecutors take this as their proof that all three of them were involved in Meredith's murder. So we're back to the original plot, but we're going to swap out Patrick with Rudy Getty. We're just going to swap out blackmail suspects here. Supposedly, on November 1st, all of them were high. They went back to the apartment to try to have an orgy with Meredith. So this is some kind of sick, twisted sex game gone wrong, is exactly how they're reporting it. Minini, the main prosecutor, says that Amanda told Raphael and Rudy to rape and murder Meredith. While she, like, stood around and laughed, I guess. I do not understand where he's getting this from. Then all three of them flee the scene. Rudy to Germany and Amanda and Raphael to fucking 10 minutes away to Raphael's house. Obviously. If you're going to run, you have to go 10 minutes away to someone else's known place where they're never going to suspect me. Exactly. Allegedly, after this, Amanda and Raphael try to stage a break-in to cover up the murder and they steal Meredith's two phones and throw them in the garden and then call the cops to go along with this scheme. By October 2008, which is eight months after Meredith is killed, Rudy Getty is officially charged with Meredith's murder, sexual assault, and theft. He asks for a fast trial and is convicted and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Did he still plead guilty at that time? Or innocent? I think that he pled not guilty. Yeah. Because his story is that it was Raphael slash Amanda. Yeah. Right. Meredith's sister, Stephanie, says that this is an important step towards justice for Meredith, and Meredith's family is just waiting to see what's going to happen next. Amanda and Raphael are also charged with murder, sexual assault, and theft. The defense argues against all of the forensic evidence, bringing in the crime scene contamination and videos from the evidence collection showing all of the issues. They also question the credibility of the homeless drug dealer, Antonio Carlotto, who was supposedly an eyewitness. Giuliano Mignini still stands by his evidence. He says that it proves beyond a doubt that Amanda and Raphael are guilty. What? Yep. Beyond a doubt? Yep. For who? For Like, I'm wondering which ass they pulled that out of, because... I can't. Most Americans believe Amanda and Raphael are innocent. But, as one journalist was quoted saying, in Italy, it's not about proving guilt. It's about proving your own innocence. Uh Uh-huh. And they've already been found guilty by the Italian press. Yeah. In the eyes of the public, they're already guilty. So their life is already ruined anyway. So may as well just throw them in jail for the heck of it. Right. By January 2009, the trial begins. Two judges and six jurors will be in charge of Amanda and Raphael's future. The jury hears about Amanda's false confession against Patrick Lumumba and her confession. 
The prosecution spends a lot of time on Amanda's personality and her behavior after the murder, but a minimal amount of time on their foolproof DNA evidence that proves guilt beyond a doubt. They don't really talk too much about that. The defense says that Rudy alone is responsible for the break-in and Meredith's murder. Amanda does testify in her own defense. She says that her confession was coerced. And that night, she and Raphael were at his place having a date night and smoking some OUID, choking Mm -hmm. that weed. The jury does not buy it. Amanda and Raphael are both found guilty in December 2009. Amanda's family is devastated. Her dad says that he tried to make eye contact with all of the jurors at the end of the trial, and none of them would look up and meet his eyes. He said that in his heart, he believes that they think that it's wrong, but Amanda had to be convicted based on everything that they had been told by the press and the cops. Even if they have doubts, they have to find her guilty. Amanda and Raphael are both ordered to pay more than $7 million to Meredith Kircher's families. And Amanda is ordered to pay Patrick Lumumba around $60,000 for defamation. Damn. Mignini says that the Supreme Court judge, the criminal court judge, everyone who looked at the case found them guilty. Raphael is sentenced to 25 years in prison and Amanda is sentenced to 26 years. They file appeals immediately. And two years later, in 2011, an Italian court overturns their convictions based on the evidence. The the evidence, yeah. All the evidence. All of the actual evidence, yeah. After four years in prison, both are finally free. Amanda gives a very emotional press conference and thanks everyone for their support and for believing in her innocence. On January 30th, 2014, the highest court in Italy rules that the murder and sexual assault convictions of Amanda and Raphael were correct. They reaffirm the convictions, meaning that legally Amanda and Raphael are now found guilty again. What? You can take it back again and again. Your appeal is granted and then it goes up a level and then your appeal is denied. Like in the United States, you can't be tried for the same thing twice, but... You can't be tried for the same thing twice, but you only have so many appeals in the system. Mm -hmm. Raphael is ordered to surrender his passport to the Italian government, meaning that he cannot leave Italy. And Amanda Knox is living legally in Seattle at this Mm -hmm. point in time. So she does not have to worry about extradition unless this ruling is upheld. It goes back to the Supreme Court again. On March 27, 2015, the Italian Supreme Court reviews the case again and overturned the convictions again. So now they're innocent. Innocent again in the eyes of the law. Oh, good. Okay. January 24th, 2019, the European Court of Human Rights adds more icing to their victory cake by ordering Italy to pay Amanda Knox more than $20,000 in damages for the harsh interrogation that she endured all the way through the investigation. Yeah. Amanda is quoted as saying, I am grateful for their wisdom in acknowledging the reality of false confessions and the need to reform police interrogation methods. Yes, 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 yes. Damn. Unfortunately, Meredith has been lost in this whole story. Nobody talks about Meredith much when they talk about this case. They really talk mostly about Amanda. And there was a huge miscarriage of justice. But ultimately, Meredith was murdered. Yeah. Her family still does not have concrete answers on exactly what happened because this case was so twisted around. 
dropped the ball from the start. Yeah, especially about informing her family about any part of this. For her family to have to go through appeal, conviction, Mm -hmm. exoneration, appeal, convicted again, and still not know this many years later is awful. Amanda Knox did write a memoir. It came out in May of 2013, and she did a lot of press interviews and to promote her book. Meredith's sister said that her family was not interested in reading this book. Quote, we are not interested in this book, just like so many others about this case. We will not read it. I have no doubt that on the other side, there is a story of pain and loss and enormous mistrust. But in the end, it is also one of hope and the opportunity to live life, something Meredith will never have and something we can never share with her. Meredith is the victim in this tragic case. Yeah, I agree a thousand percent. Yeah, that sucks because I have definitely heard the name Amanda Knox, but I've I never really knew much about the case. I only have heard like Amanda Knox's name. You know Amanda's name, but you do not know Meredith's name. Yeah. And that's the case with a lot of serial killers, which is why I try to put the victims' names in the episode titles. At least I try to always talk about the victims and their personalities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of ways that people talk about serial killers that I don't like and can't get behind. And in one of my Facebook groups, somebody was making an unsolved mysteries themed dinner. But then they said that they were going to make who killed John beignets. Oh yeah. Fried donut type of dessert. Yeah. That doesn't sit well with me, those type of jokes. And I used to make a lot of them and I used to have like trivia names that were kind of gross. And I thought it was really funny, but I think over time now, I'm just like, really the victims get disrespected in a lot of this stuff. You know, here we're going to try to keep it victim focused as much as possible. Yeah, for sure. Have you seen the documentary about Jonestown? I think it's on Hulu. It might be on Netflix. I haven't watched that one yet. No. It's pretty good. I liked it. There was someone who said, like, everybody knows Jim Jones's name. Nobody talks about all these wonderful people who would have made a difference in the world. These little kids and these wonderful, like, adults who, like, wanted this social justice and this freedom and this better future. And they all just got lost in the wind. Today, Amanda does do interviews and speaking engagements. There was a Netflix documentary that she participated in sharing her story. She seems to be enjoying her life. She got married. She has a bunch of tattoos now. Her website says that she is an exoneree journalist, public speaker, and author of New York Times bestselling memoir, Waiting to be Heard. Between 2007 and 2015, she spent four years in an Italian prison and eight years on trial for a murder she did not commit. Amanda now works to shed light on the issues of wrongful conviction, truth-seeking, and public shaming, and to inspire people towards empathy and perspective. That's awesome. She also has a podcast called The Truth About True Crime. She currently lives in Seattle with her husband, Christopher Robinson, and their two cats. In June 2019, she returned to Italy for the first time which had to have been very emotional, but also probably cathartic. Mm. In December 2020, Rudy Getty was allowed to complete the rest of his sentence with community service. When asked, Amanda said, I do know that many, many people have suffered a great deal because of what he did, and I continue to stay to be shocked that he is the forgotten killer, the one who was quietly tucked away, convicted of lesser crime, and does not have to deal with the burden of being forever associated with Meredith's death. Yeah. 
yeah, I find that very true because I didn't know his name. No, I didn't know anything about him. When you started the story, I I didn't even know if they'd for sure found the person who had done it. The fact that he just got to finish with community service just shows that he was completely off the hook. The fact that there was so much pressure and media attention on Amanda and Raphael for so many years is awful. Everything that Meredith's family has had to live through is tragic. I can't imagine having to deal not only with this deep grief and this huge loss of someone with their whole life ahead of them who was just, she's just kind of coming into her own and achieving her goals that she'd worked towards for years. Dealing with that loss and on top of that, you have to deal with this media frenzy Mm -hmm. that's nonstop and where your loved one is totally lost in the process of them vilifying and slut-shaming her roommate. Yeah. That's messed up. It's awful. I mean, it's like the, I think it was the judge. I don't know who said it, but you said, someone said that in the eyes of the media, they're already guilty. So there's no use in like, so they're already guilty, period. Oh, right. It's not about them proving your guilt. It's about you proving your innocence, right? Yeah. 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 And I feel like this also was kind of the start of this, right around the start of this 24-hour news cycle. Everything's getting a lot of coverage all the time. I would assume that the Italian media functions and operates pretty differently. That's a given. Yeah. It sounds very tabloid sensational Mm -hmm. in the mainstream coverage, even. It seems like that just infected. This story has sex and it has these attractive young people. And then there's these other two people involved who are both Black men who are probably really easy to villainize in the media. Mm -hmm. It's really just horrible. Meredith's family lost the opportunity for true justice. With Ruby doing community service, I can't imagine how that feels. Yeah. They'll never know for certain if he was involved alone or what happened. Yeah. It's very obvious to me that Amanda and Raphael and Patrick were not involved. Yeah. I mean, it sucks that Patrick got dragged into it. It sucks that anybody that wasn't involved got dragged into it. I think they really got railroaded by the cops within the first couple of hours. They started already having these leanings that Amanda's behaving weird and look at her. It's so, she's acting so strange. It's so suspicious how they're hugging each other and like huddling up to each other, but nobody is sobbing. Like, yeah, it's like when you don't like someone just for like things that you can't describe about them. It's like, this makes no sense, but I dislike this person for like breathing or something. That's exactly what happened. You just hit the nail on the head. Mignini, this guy, immediately was like, I don't like this beautiful young woman. She's not acting the way I think she should ask. She's not acting sad and quiet Mm -hmm. and all of the things that I would expect to see. And so that means she's guilty. And I'm going to find everything I can to make that the truth. Exactly. That he held on so firmly to this for so long is just gross. Really gross. Yeah. The murder of Meredith Kircher and the wrongful conviction of Amanda Knox. Holy moly. I have been trying to go out on a high note, leaving off with something happy or more cheerful. Oh, man. (laughs) What is something that has made you happy recently? Could be... I have been enjoying the warm weather. (laughs) It has been cold as balls. I do not enjoy the cold and it has been too cold for me. (laughs) 
And it's been like 60 degrees the past few days. And it's just been very refreshing. <laughs> the sun is out. Yeah. Feels like spring is around the corner. Yes. I yes. I went on a walk the other day and I saw daffodils, just little like nubs of green poking up. And I was, it put a smile on my face. <laughs> this week, my thing that makes me happy is that we bought a little frog and snail for our aquarium a few weeks back. Oh my back. gosh. It's tiny and it just makes me really happy, even though the frog yeah. hides a lot and I always oh, get worried. He's always fine. Yeah. He doesn't like to be perceived. And I feel I that. Get that. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I love him. He makes me very happy. So that's one thing. And then another thing is that I feel like I'm starting to get back on the horse of my job search and yeah. be hopeful and excited again. Now yeah. that hopefully vaccinations around the corner when I get an appointment. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about the growth of the podcast also. Thank you so much for yeah. everyone tuning in. It's really been awesome to just have people enjoy what I'm putting out there. I'm very excited to keep it going. And the last thing that makes me happy is that thanks to our lovely patrons, we have covered the cost of one of the software subscriptions that I use to edit. I do put in a ton of time researching, editing. There's several rounds of editing before things go up and somehow still things will slip through time and time again, but it's worth all of the time and effort and energy. I'm really excited to keep it going. And if you are able to support, even if you can't financially support, share with friends, make some posts, tag us on Instagram. All of that stuff is great. Yeah. I can't wait to keep bringing in more cases. I have a really long list, so stay tuned and we'll see you next week. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on. This really was a great time. It was nice to catch up. Yeah. I always love talking to you. So this was a very fun time. I thought briefly about doing Manson, but I feel like that's going to require a very deep dive or a repeated series. Hi, friends. If you like the podcast, I would love if you would go ahead and leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Please check us out on Instagram at Monsters Walk With Us all one word. And I'd love if you could send us an email and tell me where you're listening from, maybe suggest a case. The email address is hidden period monsters period walk at gmail.com. 